Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Hollywood has led us to believe that love is to accidentally spill coffee on an attractive stranger in a coffee shop and ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. But in real life, marriage is hard and sometimes it doesn't work out. Even worse, what if your handsome stranger turns out to be a monster in disguise? time, or more specifically July 4th of 1947, a beautiful little girl was born in Denmark named Hella Nilsson. She excelled in school and attended college in England. Hella had dreams of seeing the world. Following her dreams, she moved to Florida to start training to be a flight attendant for Pan American. It was a different time for air travel back then. It was seen as exclusive and glamorous. Pan Am flight attendants were known to party with celebrities and bring back cases of wine from exotic wineries overseas. In 1969, Hella met her handsome stranger at a Miami motel that was a hot spot for airline employees. Richard Crafts was 10 years her senior from New York City and the son of a successful businessman. He was a pilot for Eastern Airlines. Prior to meeting Hella, he had been a marine pilot and spent five years flying covert missions in Laos. Their relationship wasn't the fairy tale that Hella might have dreamed of, however. Richard had a tendency to be unfaithful, and he wasn't exactly a romantic, often being described as aloof and secretive. Okay, there's so many red flags and so many things wrong with this man. He's not only unfaithful, but he sounds like a bore. (laughs) Right? What's the allure of this guy? I'd assume she stayed with him anyways. Well, in 1975, Hella turned up pregnant. So the couple married and bought a house out in the suburbs, just as their upbringings had taught them it's the right thing to do. Over the next 11 years of marriage, they would have another two children, and Richard would continue to have multiple affairs. Hella was a wonderful mother to her three children, but as a flight attendant, she was away from home often, so she hired a live-in nanny to help out. Richard had little interest in his family. He was living a comfortable life on a lucrative salary of $120,000 a year. He had a tendency to spend his money on his gun collection and an obsession with the latest and greatest appliances, leaving Hella to worry about paying the bills. Richard would rarely spend much time at home. He even picked up a second job as an auxiliary police officer. Three children later and you're not interested in a family? Okay. Yeah, he seemed to be living his own life, and the family he had created was just a little side note. What's up with the gun collecting? I'll never understand people's obsession with those things. (laughs) Everyone's got their thing, I guess. So in 1984, they had a bit of a scare that could have changed everything. Richard was diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer and was given a low chance of surviving. Hella stood by him, and after receiving treatment, he went into remission. Nothing in their marriage improved, however, even after the life-threatening experience. Hella confided to her friends that Richard sometimes hit her, and she was sick of his constant lies. Okay, well, even cheaters don't deserve a life-threatening disease, but I can't say the same for men that put their hands on women. Cancer is terrible, and I get why she stood by him through it, but an abuser doesn't deserve that kind of compassion from their victims. So please tell me she left this guy. Well, she certainly tried. In the fall of 1986, 
Hella contacted a lawyer because she suspected her husband was cheating again and she was considering a divorce. The lawyer suggested a private detective to get proof they could use in court. The private detective dug up more than she had been prepared for. Richard was having multiple affairs with other flight attendants and wasn't even trying to be discreet. She received the proof that she had hired him for, but was devastated to see it so plainly in front of her. She immediately filed for divorce, and after confronting him with the proof of his infidelity, she told Richard it was over. In her last letter to her mother, she wrote about confronting Richard, stating he didn't take it well. He's very upset. He tried to talk her out of the divorce, even going as far as telling her that his cancer had returned to guilt her into staying. Hella was smart, though. One quick call to his doctor, and she knew he was full of crap. Oh my gosh, who faked something like that? That's an unforgivable low, in my opinion. I mean, good for her for calling the doctor. Right? Until the divorce was final, Hella couldn't afford to move out with the kids and keep the full-time nanny. Richard certainly wasn't going to move out willingly, so for the time being, she stuck living with him. She became increasingly concerned about Richard's violent streak. She warned her friends and her lawyer that if something happened to her, don't think it was an accident. She had a European flight assignment coming up, though, and she was looking forward to a break from her dramatic home life. Sounds like she knew he was capable of causing her serious harm. I mean, it really takes fearing for your life to tell your loved ones about it. Yeah, at that point, if a friend said that to me, that would be my signal to get them out of there. When was her trip over? She returned from her assignment on November 18th, and her best friend dropped her off at home around 7 p.m. She remembers Hella hesitated before getting out of the car. Staring at the house, she sighed, Richard's house, not home. Two days later, Hella didn't show up for her next flight assignment, and her friends started calling to find out where she was. They couldn't reach Hella, but Richard told some of them that she had gone to Denmark to be with her sick mother. He told other friends and her lawyer that Hella was on vacation in the Canary Islands. They finally started talking to each other and reached out to her mother, who wasn't sick, and his story started falling apart. Why would she just up and leave to Denmark or the Canary Islands without mentioning it to her best friend? Different stories to different people. What does he think he's playing at? I don't believe him. <laughs> Neither did one of Hella's co-workers. She had become increasingly worried about her friend and showed up uninvited at the house demanding to look inside for Hella. She found it very odd that just days after Hella's disappearance, Richard dismantled and redecorated their bedroom, even buying all new bedding. Ultimately, she was the one to officially report Hella missing on the 1st of December, two weeks after she went missing. The fact that her husband had not even attempted to report her missing set off alarm bells. This is giving me Chris Watts vibes. You know the case that took place a few years ago? Chris's wife, Shanann's friend, also dropped her off at home from the airport, and that ended up being the last time she was seen. Shanann's best friend also went to her friend's home to get some answers as to where she was and was the first one to report her missing. Nothing was redecorated, but Chris did strip the sheets. Definitely similar. They both had good best friends that don't let things go. I'm just saying crazy men think alike. Police brought Richard in for lie detector tests, which he passed. Detectives confirmed that he didn't show much emotion during the test, and he showed no signs that would lead them to believe he was lying. Richard continued those affairs that he had been having even after Hella's disappearance, 
and never once did he mention to these women, who knew he was married, by the way, that his wife was missing. Investigators suspected something sinister had happened to Hella, and focused in on Richard, who had been acting very strangely, but they didn't have a place to start. No one had any evidence that Richard had done something wrong. They didn't even have proof that Hella didn't leave on her own and go into hiding. Until a month later, when a snowplow operator came forward with a tip that would change everything. Sharon will tell us more about this huge break in the case after this short message. The week Hella disappeared was the first snowstorm of the season. Snowplow operator Joseph Hines eventually came forward to inform police that he had seen a man in an orange poncho using a wood chipper next to Lake Zor around 3 a.m., a day or two after Hella disappeared. He took police to a spot where he had last seen the man with the wood chipper, but all police found was a pile of wood chips. At least that's what they thought, until digging through it, they found pieces of an envelope addressed to Halicrafts. No one clears trees at 3 a.m. If someone is using a wood chipper at that time of night, be suspicious and call police. No one should be doing anything outside at 3 a.m. <laughs> he knew no one was buying that story. <laughs> Sham, I'm scared to even ask, but what did he do with that wood chipper? <sighs> At this point, police still hadn't grasped the significance of the wood chipper until they started finding chunks of blonde hair scattered along the bank. A disgusting idea of what might have happened to her started becoming clearer to police, especially as they sifted through the dirt and debris along the riverbank and they found blue fibers, pieces of gray metal, as well as little bone fragments. One afternoon, once the sun melted the snow, they found a fingernail painted red. Hoping to find at least a part of her body, they brought in divers, but all they found were pieces of chainsaw, but the serial number had been scratched off. One afternoon, once the sun melted the snow, they found a fingernail painted red. Hoping to find at least part of her body, they brought in divers, but all they found were pieces of chainsaw, but the serial number had been scratched off, making it impossible to know who had owned it. Ugh, this makes me feel sick to my stomach. Did he seriously put his wife through a wood chipper? Right, who even thinks about that? That is beyond sadistic. I'm sure it made finding evidence difficult, which was probably the point. Forensic scientists said if this case happened today, they'd be able to use alternative light sources to identify evidence. Some of the light sources they are talking about are capable of revealing bone fragments clearly from other debris, which obviously was important in a case like this. Back in the 80s, this was an entirely manual process, and as you can imagine, attention to detail was super important. No one in Connecticut had ever been convicted of murder without the body of a victim as evidence. Police knew now that they were going to need every shed of evidence out there in order to get this guy. Detectives needed the best out there, so they called in forensic expert Henry Lee. They took Dr. Lee out to the Crass home, where he found five tiny stains on the edge of a mattress. His test on the stains proved it was human blood, and he was even able to determine that it was the same blood type as Hella. The blood splatter pattern suggested it was caused when someone kneeling next to the bed was hit in the head with a blunt object. I've actually heard of Dr. Lee. He went on to be the lead forensic investigator on some seriously big cases like the OJ case and the JonBenet Ramsey case, his ability to find even the tiniest bits of evidence is legendary. Uh, yeah, he sounds like he knows exactly what he's doing. His findings were very detailed. Yeah, he wasn't going to miss a thing. 
Dr. Lee also tested the towels in the house, and even though they had been washed, the test still indicated that they had at one time been soaked with blood. The live-in nanny told police that she had noticed a dark stain on the carpet in the master bedroom, about the size of a grapefruit. Shortly after, Richard ripped up sections of the carpet and gave no explanation. She also said that days after Hella went missing, Richard got rid of the large chest freezer from the garage that had been working just fine as far as she knew. She didn't find any of this weird enough to report it to police immediately. She witnessed Richard doing these odd things but didn't tell anyone. Maybe she was afraid, but what she witnessed would have helped the investigation. I get being afraid, but she should have reported Hella missing as soon as she saw Richard doing these weird things. So what else were they able to find? Lee took the forensics team up to the lake that Christmas week to thaw the ground inch by inch and filter everything for shreds of human evidence. When the laboratory got the chainsaw, they had no idea if it was connected. It could have been completely unrelated and just tossed in at random. They found hair, human tissue, and the same type of blue fiber they found earlier, all in the teeth of the chainsaw. The scientists used a chemical solution to eat away the top layer of the area where it had been scratched, revealing the deeper carved numbers below. It worked, and they were able to match the serial number to a warranty held by Richard Crafts. Merry Christmas, Richard. We found your missing chainsaw. That's not all they found. Okay, what else? Further digging led police to find credit card receipts that showed Richard had rented a 2,700-pound wood chipper and U-Haul truck in the days following Hella's disappearance. He told the rental service and the police when confronted that he had cut down some trees at his property. During a conversation one night, his brother-in-law warned Richard that police had divers out in the lake. Richard responded, and I quote, Let them dive. There's no body. It's gone. End quote. This guy was so cocky, it's sickening. Maybe he thought since he worked with the police, they wouldn't look too hard at him. The fact that they're still looking means that you're in hot water, Richard. (laughs) Right? He was so sure that his plan to destroy the evidence had worked perfectly. No body, no crime. They needed to prove that the pieces they were finding was actually Hella. They couldn't leave any doubt that she might still be alive. The forensics team compared her hair from her hairbrush and nail polish found in her nightstand to the pieces of remains that they had found, and it all matched. They had also found a crown in the debris by the lake, but there was no tooth attached to it. After five more days of sifting through the mud by hand, they found a tooth, and they were able to match to her dental records. Hella Craft was officially dead. Poor Hella. She suspected he would try to kill her. She even warned her friends that if something happened to her, it wasn't an accident. But she had no idea that he would take it this far. No one could have expected this to happen to her. What did even happen to her? Dr. Lee thought he knew what had happened, but he wanted to be sure that his theory was solid. So he rented the exact same model wood chipper that Richard had and fed a frozen pig through it in a bizarre science experiment. The wood chipper left distinct marks on the pig carcass pieces as it chewed it up. He compared those markings to the bone fragments found at the lake, and it was a match. Dr. Lee was ready to present his theory on what had happened to Hella based on his forensic investigation findings. This is going to be horrible, isn't it? Dr. Lee saw it happening like this. Hella returned home at 7 p.m. on the 18th. She put the children to bed at 8 because Richard had given the nanny the night off, and she wasn't expected home until midnight. 
Before going to bed herself, she put on her favorite blue nightgown and sorted through her mail, which was stuffed in the pocket of her nightgown as she started changing the sheets on the bed. Richard came up behind her and hit her over the head with a heavy police flashlight, knocking her to her knees. He then hit her again, which killed her. He wrapped her up in the bedding, carried her to the garage, and stuffed her into the freezer. He tried to clean up the blood with towels, but he couldn't get all of it out of the carpet. In the morning, Richard took the kids to the nanny to his sister's house, saying that Hallel had left early. He then rented a U-Haul truck and the wood chipper. He took Hallel's body and the wood chipper to the lake around 3.30 in the morning. There, he dismembered her with the chainsaw and fed her through the wood chipper along with some wood. Most of the pieces blew into the river, efficiently destroying the evidence. Only a few pieces fell short and landed on the bank. Because her body was frozen, it didn't create blood splatter, so there was no bloody mess to clean up in the wood chipper before returning it. Before leaving the lake, he took apart the chainsaw, scratched off the serial number, and threw it into the river. That's intense. They were able to piece together so much detail about what happened that night off such little bits of evidence. Right? Richard was arrested and charged, and he continued to maintain his innocence. As the trial date loomed, the location had to be moved as it was impossible to find jurors that had not yet heard of the case. This case had been all over the media headlines. Every eligible juror in the area knew something about the case. They talked about it constantly and even made jokes about it frequently. It was decided the trial would be moved to New London. After questioning 46 prospective jurors over the course of five days, 10 men and two women were selected. The courtroom was packed. This was the first murder trial in Connecticut during which cameras had ever been allowed. Prosecutors faced a double burden because not only did they have to convince the jury that Hella was actually dead, they also had to convince the jury that Richard was the one who killed her. There was no physical body, leaving the possibility for reasonable doubt a serious risk. The motive, they argued, was that Richard didn't want to get a divorce, likely because it would have cost him a fortune. Okay, so people would rather kill their spouse and risk going to prison than cough up a few dollars. I know, it's disgusting that murder seems a better option than divorce to monsters like him. He deserves the max sentence for this. The trial was very complex. They relied very heavily on just about every forensic science known at the time. The prosecutors had to hope it wouldn't overwhelm the jurors. Even the manufacturer of the wood chipper testified. A silence fell over the courtroom as Richard Crafts took the stand in his own defense. Dressed in a blue shirt and a striped tie, 50-year-old Richard stared towards his attorney as he answered questions about his wife. When asked if he had used a chainsaw or a wood chipper to kill his wife, he calmly replied, no, sir, I did not. Who is this guy, Ted Bundy? (laughs) He was less charming than Ted Bundy. (laughs) He still thinks everyone will believe his lies. The jury was sent away to make their decision, but after 17 days of deliberation, the judge declared a mistrial. One of the 12 jurors refused to convict, and a second trial was scheduled for the following year. The second trial followed much the same lines, but this jury only needed eight hours. Richard was convicted of murder on November 21st, 1989, and sentenced to 50 years in prison. 
The manner in which Richard went about hiding his crime was shocking and unnerving to police and the community. Police used it as an example that being wealthy does not make you immune to issues of domestic violence. The Woodchipper case, as it had come to be called at the time, was the state's first murder conviction ever without a body. Domestic violence has no wage requirements. The wealthy are just less likely to be held accountable for their crimes. This is true. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You are capable of domestic violence. If anything, I find those guys even more dangerous because they can easily post bail, pay for the best lawyers, and threaten you with child custody. So he's still in prison then? Nope. Richard Crafts, age 82, got out 20 years early due to a law in place at the time of his 1987 sentencing that allowed for sentences to be reduced by years as a reward for good behavior in prison work. In prison, Richard had been issued only two disciplinary tickets, both for possession of contraband. By law, the Department of Corrections cannot divulge in any other information on incarcerated inmates. 20 years off the sentence of a cold-blooded killer? How does that even make sense? That's a slap on the wrist, and Hella's family deserves so much more. It just isn't right. That law has since been changed, but the Department of Correction didn't have a choice. They had to enforce the law in place at the time of the conviction. If Richard Kraft were sentenced under today's law, he would have not been eligible for any time off his sentence based off his offense. 20 years is clearly a huge sentence reduction, said Lucy Lang, director for the Institution for Innovation and Prosecution at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Lang went on to explain that Kraft's case poses a larger systemic question. Especially given the U.S. rapidly aging inmate population and possible release of now geriatric violent offenders. This is exactly the kind of case that the criminal justice system is going to have to think really hard about. Where do we draw the line? Judges know that violent offenders will continue to age when they hand down these long sentences. (laughs) Why are people suddenly surprised when they get old in prison? Right? We know that he'll be old as hell in prison, and I personally don't care. He needs to serve his full sentence, especially for what he did and how he committed his crime. That's what we call justice. Okay, so what happened to him then? After being released, he was noted as living in a transitional housing program for veterans in Bridgeport, Connecticut. In 2020, he was moved to a homeless shelter for veterans, which is also in Bridgeport. Richard will be supervised by a parole officer there. If this case sounds familiar, it's because it was one of the cases that inspired the movie Fargo. It was also famously featured as the first episode of Forensic Files. This case actually revolutionized forensic investigation technology. This case proved that evidence could be anything, and even the smallest evidence can be the biggest impact. Today, it's easier to identify someone's DNA. All that's needed now are 20 skin cells to profile a person. All they need now is something people may have touched, worn, or left behind. It is so much easier now to identify remains, even with very little left. I really appreciate the level of dedication that forensic team went to in order to get justice for Hella. Me too. Her case was one of the lucky ones in that aspect. However, what happened to Hella could have been anyone in a domestic violence situation. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. For many, home is a place of love, warmth, and comfort. It's somewhere that you know you will be surrounded by care and support and a nice little break from the busyness of the outside world. 
But for millions of others, like Hella, home is anything but a sanctuary. The U.S. Department of Justice estimates that 1.3 million women and 835,000 men are victims of physical violence by a partner every year. Every nine seconds, a woman in the U.S. is beaten or assaulted by a current or ex-significant other. One in four men are victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner as well. Yet the systems to which survivors and their children turn to are frequently unprepared to address the range of issues they face in trying to access safety and heal from the traumatic effects of abuse. I really want to emphasize how important domestic violence awareness is. As a woman who has gone through and managed to leave a relationship that was not only toxic but life-threatening, I would like our listeners going through it or know someone that is currently in one that they are not alone. You never really know who's capable of harming a loved one, and these people can either come off as super sketchy or incredibly nice outside of their home. In my case, there were days I thought would be my last, and on those days, I reached out to one friend, and even though they didn't know the extent of what I was going through, they always helped me build up a little bit more strength to leave. I covered up the bruises, and sometimes I would spend days away from my loved ones recovering. My physical abuse lasted about three years. I always found myself as a rather odd case because I grew up surrounded by love. My family and my parents' marriage was truly beautiful, so I knew what I called love wasn't right. I think that's what ultimately made me leave and never look back. The scariest time in a domestic violence situation is when you finally decide to leave. We recently had a case in the Pacific Northwest where a woman left the situation that she was in and he went to jail. However, he took out his 401k to post bail and the next day showed up to his children's school where the mom was picking up the kids and took her life by gun in the school parking lot in front of their children. It's not easy to tell your loved ones what you're going through, but when a victim drops a hint, take that seriously. You don't have to get involved and it may not be safe to do so, but please be there when they need you. Let your loved ones know that no matter what, they have a safe place to come to when they're ready. Provide them with resources and refer them to a therapist. It's not only hard to leave a violent situation, but it's hard to stay away from it as well. The process is rough and the system often fails the victim time and time again, but please just be there. The National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health provides training, support, consultation to advocates, mental health, substance abuse providers, legal professionals, and policymakers. They work to improve agency and systems-level responses to survivors and their children. Their work is survivor-defined and rooted in principle and social justice. If you are a victim of domestic violence or know someone who is, go to www.nationalcenterdvtraumamh.org or call 312-726-7020 for more information. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram, at Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what is our conjure tip of the week? Today we want to highlight the stone aquamarine. This stone purifies the body and enhances clarity of mind with its gentle and compassionate energy. It also helps bring closure to unresolved situations. 
It's especially good for sensitive people, promoting self-courage, alleviating fears and phobias. Aquamarine is an excellent stone for healing, calming, and balancing the physical, emotional, and mental aspects. This stone sounds like it's worth having around if you are in a situation you would love to work up the courage to get out of, or maybe need help healing after leaving a bad situation. If you know someone who needs it, gift it to them. We'll be back on Tuesday with another episode. Until Until next time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.